If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 13 this morning. This morning, as we prepare to hear a sermon from God's Word, consider if you are actually sermon-proof. Consider if you are sickness-proof. These two descriptors, sermon-proof and sickness-proof, are two ways that John Owen describes those that have actually hardened themselves against hearing the voice of God. God is speaking, God is calling to them, but they've made themselves impenetrable to His voice. Frankly, that's a frightening thought, at least for me. We know because the Bible says so that not all sickness is a direct result of sin. Nevertheless, God often uses sickness, sometimes gives us sickness to grab our attention, causing us to not only reflect on our own mortality, but also to consider our standing before Himself. Still yet, more regularly, more clearly, God speaks through the preached Word He speaks through sermons so that even to those who rarely hear a sermon, the Spirit is at work through the proclamation of God's Word. He is calling out to us, seeking us that we might be changed because of Him. But what happens when we close our eyes? What happens when we plug our ears, when we set our hearts on other things and are unable to hear the voice of of God. What happens when we have so accustomed ourselves to ignoring him and what he is saying to us that we effectively become sermon proof? Whether that is what takes place in these moments or when it is the sermon of events in the world and in our lives that God seeks to use. That's very much the situation that Jesus faces in Luke 13, those that have become sermon proof. You'll remember in chapter 12, Jesus has been preaching and teaching to his disciples and then to the crowds that had gathered around him. We've been looking at that the last several weeks, even last week. And just before this, what we saw last week is that Jesus had some very hard words about the need for people to repent before God. And in fact, he's going to continue that theme today. But in the midst of him telling people that they needed to repent, there are those there that are listening that jump in. And they appear to agree with Jesus. In doing so, though, they reveal that they themselves have not yet repented. They look at those around, those that have been uh, mentioned, those that might even be on the minds of those in the audience. They hear what Jesus is saying. They say, yeah, Jesus, you're right. In fact, we remember those Galileans. Remember those guys? Boy, they sure needed to repent, didn't they? But Jesus is looking at them saying, no, you need to repent. It's not just the Galileans, you need to repent. And likewise today, through the word, he is going to say to us, you need to repent. I need to repent. But how do we know that we need to repent? How will we be able to tell that this is what God is calling us to do? Well, this is what Jesus tells us in these verses before us. So follow along as I begin reading at Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Luke says there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. 
I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? But he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is God's word. May he bless its reading. Jesus looks at those who have insulated themselves from hearing God speak and says, you had better listen carefully because you are the ones that need to repent. Not just those people out there. You yourselves need to understand what God is saying to you. And it's this message, repent or perish for the judgment of God is coming. And all the reasons that you think you are safe from that judgment are wrong. Just as he did in his day, so also through these words, his words, Jesus is telling us the same message today. We need to hear that message clearly lest we perish. That message is simple, repent. But what is repentance? That sounds like a nice nice churchy word, but what does it mean? What are we actually to do? How are we to understand what repentance is? Well, if we track along with what Jesus says here, we'll actually come to a pretty good understanding of what repentance is all about. And it begins by understanding the call for repentance. The call for repentance. Again, just before this, Jesus was saying that the people of Israel lacked spiritual discernment. Now, some in the crowd think they are in his side of things. They think they have spiritual discernment. Others don't, and they're going to give him evidence that they have spiritual discernment. They point to this recent event that they think is a sign of the times. But what Jesus does is take their comment and judo flips it into condemnation on their own heads for the attitudes that they reveal. He's been talking about God's calling for repentance. And what he says is, look, you need to understand the everyday events going on around you are serving as God's call for you to repent. Specifically, he says that we can see this call in terrible atrocities. Terrible atrocities. Luke says in verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't know anything else about this event other than what Luke tells us because this has been lost to history. It doesn't show up in any other passage in the Bible. So basically what we have to do is take the, the clear details that Luke tells us and piece together what we know from the Bible and secular history and bring it together to get a better idea about what is going on in this, in this situation. Pilate, we know, wasn't a nice guy. He was the Roman ruler of that area and he didn't particularly like the Jewish people. Furthermore, we know that his administration was marked by what one historian says is, quote, many massacres. He was not a dove, he was a hawk in modern day political terms. He had no qualms about bringing in Roman soldiers and just taking people out and separating the bodies and figuring out what was going on later. 
That, that, was, that was his style, in part because he was fearful of Caesar and of the people, and he wanted to make sure he was viewed as a good leader. History, sadly, does not give him what he wants. From what we see, from what Luke says, at least on one occasion, there were Jews from Galilee, Galilean Jews. They were there to offer sacrifices at the temple, probably at Passover. Why? Because they're not identified as priests, just Galileans. And the only time that lay Jews were able to participate in blood sacrifice was at the time of Passover. And while they were there offering their sacrifice, Pilate had them killed. Again, we don't know for sure why he did this, but we can take a pretty good guess. At this time, the Galilean Jews were very, even fiercely independent. They absolutely resented Roman authority over the nation of Israel and were known to even commit um, terrorist-type attacks to show their, dis- their dislike of this uh, occupation that they felt was upon them. Pilate therefore saw the Galileans especially as a political threat. They were troublemakers for the peace and security of Rome in the region. Now again, we don't know the circumstances here. We don't know what is actually taking place. These people may have actually been innocent. Maybe they didn't do anything wrong and he was just setting an example. But what we do know is that Pilate blasphemed God by mixing the blood of their offering of worship to him with the spilled blood of the veins of those offering the worship. He takes the the, the blood that has been let out for the sacrifice and he takes the blood of those that were there to worship after having been slaughtered and he mixes it together and presumably throws it at the temple as an offering. As one author suggests, we can begin to grasp something of the sacrilege. If we were to imagine on the first Sunday of a month, as we are prepared to take up the cup of the Lord's Supper, some were to come in and kill some of us and put our blood into the communion cups. Now we begin to imagine something of what this was like for the mind of the Jews Now, those telling this account, those bringing this to Jesus' remembrance, they're doing this because in their mind, the Galileans got what they deserved. In their mind, something that atrocious could not have happened unless they deserved it. They had committed some sin. And Jesus knows this. And so he asked them, he goes, why are you bringing that up? Why are you telling me this? Do you really think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way, do you think that they were more sinful? He says, no, in this atrocity, you should see a call of repentance for yourself. When you Jews see your fellow Jews being slaughtered like that, what you should say is, boy, look at the look, look what they got. They must have been pretty bad dudes. No, you should say, I need to repent before God. That's what Jesus says. He says that this call to repentance is seen in terrible atrocities, but it's also seen in tragic accidents. It's also seen in tragic accidents. Jesus goes on to give another example. He he, he keeps pressing in on them. He says, consider those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Now, as before, we don't know anything about this thing. 
It's obviously well known because Jesus just throws it out there and he knows they're going to know what's going on, but we don't know anything about it. Some have suggested that this was near the famous pool of Siloam, that it was a construction accident as a tower that was being built that was uh, meant to support the waterworks of the area collapsed and fell. We were in the Philippines and we saw they're trying to make this um, uh, extended train track above the, the city to have a light rail system. They had not supported it well and a whole section had caved in and collapsed. These things happen. Others suggest it was part of the wall of Jerusalem itself, some, some tower off the wall for security that had collapsed and crumbled. Either way, the example stands in contrast to the incident of the Galileans. There's no premeditation here. No one has it out for them. No one is, is seeking their harm. It's an accident, plain and simple. But Jesus' response, notice, is the exact same. He says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Do you think because the tower fell on them that God is saying they had it coming? That he intentionally did that against them? He says, no, don't think that way. He says, when you see something like that happen, here's what needs to go through your mind. Repent or I will likewise perish. Even today, there are atrocities and accidents that are happening all around us. And we have to ask, how are we making sense of those things? What is our first thoughts when we hear about such tragic and terrible happenings? Jesus says our first thought should be of our own repentance. Specifically, that we should understand these sad, sad circumstances to be, as it were, a divine megaphone calling us to turn from our sin towards Him. Now, why should we think that way? Why should that be our first thought? Because Jesus is going to teach us the reality that all of us need to repent. Every single person who has ever lived. That's the second thing, the second truth that we see from this text. We, we have seen the call to repent. Now we need to see the need for repentance the need for repentance. One of the greatest spiritual problems that anyone will ever have in life is not being able to see their need to repent. Being blind to the reality that they are a sinner just like everyone else. They're tempted to say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. Yeah, she needs to repent. But what about yourself? Jesus eviscerates thinking that would look to others but not to themselves as sinful by first pointing out the commonality of sin. The commonality of sin. In Jesus' day, and even in these people, even though they, they believed in God, the one true God, they were good Jews in that sense, they had an almost karmic view of God and sin and repentance and judgment. In their mind, if you did something good, you would get blessing from God. If you did something bad, you disobeyed, then you would get cursing from God. Something bad would happen to you. Does that sound familiar today from some TV preachers? Remember Job's friends? He, he has one really terrible day. He, he loses everything, his family, his wealth, even his health. This disaster falls upon Job. And all his friends say are is, so what'd you do wrong? What'd you do wrong? You, you better repent because it's clear you've done something wrong to bring this upon yourself. But what does God tell us about Job? Job God make, wants to make it absolutely clear that these so-called friends are stooges. Because the very first verse of the book establishes what is going to happen, how we should be thinking. And it says, Job was blameless and upright and one who feared God and turned away from evil. 
God is telling us from the very beginning, Job didn't do anything to deserve this any more than what anybody else in the history of the world has done. In fact, he's better than most. He's blameless. He's upright. He feared God and turned away from evil. Therefore, this disaster, this misfortune had nothing to do with his standing before God. That, that's what we're told in that book, and it has implications for how we think about the world. Now, Jesus is not denying that sometimes if you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. That there are consequences to our sinful actions that will naturally come upon us, right? So you have tragedies where people drink too much alcohol, get intoxicated, and they go for a drive. And what happens? Somebody dies. Sadly, it's most often not them. It's somebody else. But there are others who try for various reasons whether it's escaping reality or responsibilities or trying to alleviate despair, abuse drugs, and they overdose and they die. There's a real sense in which their sin has had natural negative consequences in their life. Jesus is not denying that, but what he is saying is this. You cannot draw a direct line from every misfortune, every mischance, every, uh, every bad and terrible thing that happens from you to God in judgment. So you can't do that. Suffering is part of the life in which we live in this world because it is stained by sin. We have to expect suffering. God tells us that at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, you blew it. Now everyone's going to be sinful and everything's going to be messed up. It's not going to be the way I made it. This commonality of sin is common because it pervades all of us. To be human is to be a sinner. That's what the Bible says. That there's no one born that's not sinful, save Jesus Christ himself. And therefore, there is not anyone born that does not need to be repentant before God. So, so when people get slaughtered by Pilate or get crushed by a falling tower, Jesus says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? The answer is no. Why? Because we're just as bad as them. If it's a matter of getting what they deserve, guess what? That should have been us too. That's what Jesus is saying. You're no better, you're no worse than them. If it's about deserving, if it's about getting what you deserve, then that should have been us. Jesus says all of us need to repent because all of us are sinful before God. And that's the problem that we all face. We need to repent before God because there is a certain judgment that is coming and we will all face it. Jesus says that th this, is, this is the second reason why we need to experience repentance because there is a certainty of judgment. A certainty of judgment. If you look at verses 3 and 5, they're identical. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, Jesus doesn't just mean perish as in die from some tragedy. No, what he means is he's taking the, the physicality of their death and using it to illustrate a spiritual reality, a spiritual death at his coming. Some of you just finished up school for the year, and, and, or you're about to, and you're happy for that. But you know, next fall when school starts, when classes begin, a teacher has fixed a date upon which you will undergo examination. You will be tested for how well you 
paid attention in class, how well you processed and learned the information that you were being taught. And some of you dread that day. It's coming. You can't do anything about it. You can't stop it. You can't move it. The teacher has fixed that day. Some of you start a new job or have started a new job in the past. Some of you may be wanting to start a new job. I don't know. Let us know. We'll pray for that. But when you start a new job, you know at some point, most jobs, there has already been appointed a day of evaluation. Sometimes it's three months, sometimes it's six months, sometimes it's a full year, sometimes it's every year. But there is a day when either informally you and the boss are going to sit across one another in the break room with a Coke and a sandwich and talk about how you're doing, or you're going to have to go in, perhaps to sit before a guy with a jacket and tie, and you're going to have to give an account for the time that you've invested at that company. They've been paying you money. Has that been a worthwhile payment? Are they getting their money's worth from you? Where do you need to improve? The evaluation is coming. God is no different. God is no different. He has fixed a day upon which every single person will stand before him and have to give an account of his or her life. Everyone in this room will one day have to give an account for every word, every thought, every attitude, every intention of your heart. All of it will be put on display before God. Nothing will be hidden from sight. And you'll have to give an account. Did you worship the creator who graciously made you and gave you life? Did you love the God who has loved you and demonstrated that through Christ? Did you obey the King who has invested your mind with a sense of right and wrong and given you rules to live by, rules for your good and for your joy? Jesus says that day is coming, and unless we repent, we will perish, just like the people in these verses. So when we see disaster and tragedy, how should we respond? Well, let me give you a negative example. Some of you will remember that in the weeks after 9-11, two prominent Christian men went on national television and they said that this act of terror came because of the liberals and the sinners in this country. They said this destruction, that this 5,000 people whose lives were snuffed out in a most terrible way, all of this was the fault of the pagans, the ACLU, the abortionists, the homosexuals, and others. It was God's judgment on them and this country, and they should be blamed for what happened. In light of Jesus' words here, that is utterly foolish. It is wrong It is sinful to say such things. Are they sinful? Sure. But so are you and so am I. Even as God's people, we deserve to be in that tower that day. Nothing more, nothing less. That's the nature of sin. That's the heinousness of our rebellion and disobedience. It is the joy of salvation in Christ that those sins are forgiven. But none of us... None of us are any better or any worse than those other people that we just named, that those two people on television named. In the face of personal or public disaster, our, our worldview as Christians, a disciple of Christ, should not be to start pointing fingers. It should be that, that we, we catch our breath and we pause and we think, that should have been me. That should have been me. Not, that's what they deserve, but that's what I deserve. 
Because of my sin before a holy God, that just as easily could have been me in that car. That could have been me with a, a needle in my arm. That could have been me on that plane that went down. And God would have been completely just in letting that happen. When we see the devastating effects of life in this sinful world, we should follow the example of the Puritan pastor John Bradford. It was said that whenever he was going through town and would see convicted criminals being led away to their death at the gallows, he would pause and with great sincerity and sobriety say that phrase that has become so famous today, there but for the grace of God go I. He was a pastor of a church, a well-known pastor. And he sees criminals on their way to death by hanging and says, except for the grace of God in my life, that should be me. Even today, Jesus asks us through his word, do you think that these were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered this way? Do you think they were worse, offender, worse offenders than all the others in the world who have lived? No, Jesus says, no, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And if we heed that warning and repent, then Jesus says we should be able to see the evidence of our repentance. This is the third truth that we want to see this morning about repentance, the evidence of repentance. Jesus says repent, but again, what does that mean? What does it mean to repent? Well, again, repentance is not simply being sorry you got caught. That's political repentance. I'm sorry I got caught, but I'll probably do it again. Repentance is not minimizing what you did. It's not saying, yeah, I did it, but you don't know the circumstances. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying, okay, I'll try better next time. That's not repentance. Repentance is not even confessing your sin. It's not even admitting up to owning to it. No, true repentance, the thing that Jesus is calling us to, that the whole Bible calls us to, is something far deeper. What is it? How can you tell when you've really repented before God? The Bible says that there are three marks of genuine repentance, evidence that you've really obeyed the command of Jesus here. The third is what he lands on, but let me give you the first two as well. First of all, repentance is seen in sorrow for offending God. Sorrow for offending God. What life has been ruined because of your sin? What devastation has come in the wake of your sin? In the end, the Bible says God is the one who is most grieved. God is the one who is most offended by your sin. Therefore, this is where real repentance begins. With the acknowledgement that my sin, no matter how bad for myself and those around me, my sin, first and most importantly, has been an offense against God. It's an acknowledgement that I have rejected his ways, that I have rebelled against his love, that the one true and living God has been offended by what I did. That, that's, that's where true repentance begins. Secondly, though, true repentance is seen when we turn from sin towards God in faith. When we turn from sin towards God in faith. The central image in the word repent is making a turn. It's actually an about face. It's you're moving one direction and you flip 180 degrees and immediately been going the other direction. You are turning away from your sin towards the living God. And specifically, the Bible says we do this in faith. Now, faith in what? Well, remember what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry? In Mark chapter 1, he, the, first, the first sermon that he preached was this, repent 
and believe the gospel. Two commands, repent and believe the gospel. These two commands go together. Repentance is turning away from the ugliness of our sin that's offensive to God, but it's also turning towards God, the one that we've offended. Specifically, faith towards Him. You say, wait a minute, if I've offended Him, why am I turning towards Him? Because He is the one that can forgive you. If your greatest offense is towards God, then He is the one whose forgiveness you need to secure. And He has promised He will do that because of His Son, Jesus Christ and the work that he has done to accomplish salvation for sinners. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the tower of God's judgment that fell on him and crushed him for our sins. Not for his own, for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, his blood wasn't just mingled with sacrifices for sin. His blood was the sacrifice for sin. Spilled out, not because of what he has done to offend God, but because of what we have done to offend God. The Bible says that's the only way that we can be saved, by trusting in Jesus' saving work. We don't trust ourselves. We can't. The cost is too high. We can't save ourselves. We can never earn God's righteousness or His forgiveness. But Christ could, and He did. He was the only man who was sinless, and yet He died for sinners. And when we turn away from our sin and turn towards God in faith in Christ, we are told, we are promised over and over and over again that God will be merciful and He will forgive. Anything less than that, though, is not true repentance. Finally, the Bible says that true repentance is seen in an outward change of godliness. An outward change of godliness. The result of repentance is a changed life. This is why it's not just enough to be sorry for sin or even confess your sin. True repentance is seen in change. There will be fruits of godliness. That's what Jesus says. Look again at verses 6 through 7. Luke says immediately after confronting the, the wrong idea about somehow the people that had the tower and, and, and the slaughter come upon them were, were more sinful, Luke says that Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now remember wherever where we're at here. Jesus is standing... Before his countrymen, according to the flesh, he's standing in about, about 32, 33 AD. He's in the midst of his people, the nation of Israel. Think about what he's saying to him. You go back in the Old Testament, what do you see? Israel's called the vineyard that God planted. It's called the vine that God tended. Jesus is saying to them, look, God planted you. God cultivated you. God gave you his attention and his care. And yet here I am standing before you and there's no fruit. There's no fruit. There, there, there's nothing being produced by you. Israel had the law. They had the covenant. They had the priesthood. They had the temple. They had the sacrifices. They had the history of God's redemptive work from Adam through Abraham. They were his people. J.C. Ryle says, these th things were done for Israel that were never done for Egypt or Nineveh or Babylon or Greece or Rome. It was only just and right that they should bear fruit to God's praise. It might reasonably be expected that there would be more faith, more repentance, more holiness, more godliness in Israel than in any other land. But what does Jesus say he finds when he comes? No fruit in keeping with true repentance. Wasn't that the message of John the Baptist? Do you remember when we way back 
Who knows how, how many weeks and months ago it was. But when we first started the Gospel of Luke, John is preaching, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And the Pharisees come out and say, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And you know that their response is like, well, we've come to repent. And he's like, go and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Yeah, you, you play a good game, Pharisees. You, you say you're repentance. You say you're religious. But go live it out. Show the world that you've truly repented by the fruit of your life. And Jesus is saying the same thing. There's no sorrow for sin in Israel at this point. There's no turning toward God in faith. There's, there's no evident godliness that should be there. Isaiah 5 tells the story so well. The prophet says, God dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. This is the, Israel, the vineyard of Israel. He dug it, he cleared it, he planted it. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it only yielded wild grapes. You ever tasted sour grape juice before? It's not very pleasant. God is saying, when I, when I planted Israel, I, I expected to have this sweet, luscious, full-bodied wine that I could sit down and feast with, and instead, I had bitter, sour grapes. You can't make wine with that. It's disgusting. It's foul. It's good for nothing. It's terrible when you think about that. Jesus' point is, there's no amount of religious activity, there's no amount of tradition and history that's good enough to make you right with God. Only true repentance will do, and true repentance is seen by its fruit. But of course, that's not just for Israel, is it? Think about what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. Great. Thanks, Paul. We don't work for salvation. God gives it to us as a gift. But what does he say in the next verse? We're saved for works. Not by works, but for works. Those that have been saved are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So if you're here today and you've, you've repented of your sins, you've put your faith in Christ, ask yourself, what kind of fruit am I bearing? Is there, is there the evidence of God at work in my life that I have truly repented? Think about the work of cultivation and care that God's put into you. Bibles all around our house, laying in our car, on our phones, sermon after sermon that you've heard, some good, probably some bad, book after book that you've read, Bible study after Bible study that you've attended. Is he pleased after all of that, after all that grace he's put into you? Is he pleased by the fruit that's evident in your life? If not, then Jesus says, repent, repent. And here's the thing. The beauty of this passage is that he gives you some of the greatest encouragement to actually repent. Because the temptation is we sit back and we think, you know what? My, my life is full of sour grapes. God's been trying to tend this vineyard. He's been trying to cultivate and I've ignored him. I've insulated myself. I've, I, I've resisted his calls to repentance and godliness. And, and now as I'm sitting here listening to Jesus, I realize that there's not much fruit to show. There, there's, there's not much there. 
God must be ashamed of me. How would he ever want me to, to, to come before him? How, how, why would he want to listen to me repent? And Jesus says, oh, oh, trust me, he wants you to repent. Here he gives us the motivation that we should feel for repentance. The motivation that we should feel for repentance. Jesus' message, you see, it sounds hard. And in many ways it is hard because he's, he's clear. He's uncompromising. This is what it is. There's no wiggle room. But he gives hope. He shows us that, that even now in the midst of those that, that have, as it were, that, that the tower about to fall, the, 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 the sword about to come upon the slaughter, even now God is standing there holding out his hand of hope, offering to receive us when we repent. Think again about the parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it. He found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit in this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? But then the vine dresser intercedes, verse 8. He answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And if, I should, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. And if, it's not, if it does not, then you can cut it down. What should motivate us in these verses? What should give us hope? What should cause us to come with humility and repentance and faith? God's patient waiting. God's patient waiting. Think about how glorious this is. Jesus says, I'm looking at you, Israel, and I see nothing but deadness. You see withering vines when there should be an abundance of fruit. It should be the Jaquita lady there dancing with the, with the hat going. It should be amazing. And there's nothing there. I've been waiting all these years, hundreds of years. I show up as your Messiah. You don't even recognize me. Where is the fruit? They discern to just have the whole place firebombed. But instead he says, I'll be patient a little bit longer. I mean, I mean we're talking about Abraham getting the promises 2000 AD. 2000 AD. 2000 years God has been cultivating Israel. And, and, he, and he shows up in Christ. And that they're not ready. There's no fruit. There's, there's, there's no evidence of real repentance. And God says, it's okay. I'll be patient a little longer. I'll be patient a little longer. They're so undeserving of that. And even today, we don't deserve God's patience. And yet he gives it to us. How many times must God have looked at us individually, looked at this church collectively and said, there should be more fruit than this. What have you been doing with all the grace I've been giving you? How, how, how are you, you living with all of, the, all of the gifts that I've poured into you? Where's your evangelistic zeal? Where's your manifest godliness? Where's the love and sacrifice for, the, for one another that I've called you to? Nevertheless, I'm not ready to pull you up by the roots and throw you away. I'm going to be patient with you and see what happens. Still yet, there are some of you here that aren't even Christians. Perhaps coming in this morning, you were unsure about who Jesus is. Maybe you care nothing for Jesus. He's not for you. You're doing happy on your own. Just remember what Jesus said. What Jesus said. All of us deserve the slaughter. All of us deserve the tower. But God has been patient. He, he's been patient giving you more time that you might see the life and the forgiveness and the joy that he holds out in Christ that you might repent and believe. So don't, don't delay, don't test his patience. Don't trample on his patience. Repent and believe lest you perish. 
God's patient waiting should motivate us to repent, but secondly, we should also be motivated by God's merciful working. By God's merciful working. Not only is God going to withhold the judgment that Israel deserves, but he's going to continue to invest in it. Now, I think probably most of us here are not farmers. We don't, we're not the sons of farmers. You know, we just like the fruit of farming, right? We, 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 we like to, to eat what the farmers give us. So the thought of being covered in manure is probably not real pleasant to us. We hear Jesus saying, it's okay, I'm going to come and pile up the manure all around you. You're thinking, no thanks, okay? But for the farmer, this is money. This is time. This is care for his crop. And in the parable, the vine dresser says, I'm going to be patient with you. But more than that, he says, I'm going to continue to work for you. I'm going to work in you and around you. I'm not just going to leave you to sit for yourself. I'm going to come and care for you. I'm going to dig out the soil, loosen all up around the roots. I'm going to be liberal with the fertilizer. I'm going to give this struggling vine all of my attention for the next year. What should motivate us to seek after God in repentant faith? Because God himself is at work in our lives. Even when, we, when he shows up and we're bearing no fruit. So many of us have no patience with people. It's like, you know what? They're not worth my time. I'm done. And God says, no, I'm not done. I'm not done. I'll not only be patient, I'm going to continue to work. I'm going to pour out my mercy upon you. I'm going to continue to draw you to myself, to encourage you in your faith and your faithfulness. Every time you call out to God in prayer, the Father is listening and desires to give you what you need. Every time you open his book, the Spirit is seeking to open your mind and your heart to give you what you need. Every time you hear a sermon, the risen Christ is declaring truth to you that you might be equipped with what you need. Every time you gather together with God's people, you're being built up and spurred to love and good works, the very things that you need. The more you seek after God, the more he will be found. It is the great mercy of God in withholding judgment to continue to work in our lives, to strengthen us, that we might produce the fruit of true repentance. Last month, there was a very severe storm system that brought death and destruction across the Midwest, Midwest and part of the southern states. Could have easily been a time of fear and self-pity, but for one man, he saw it as a call to repentance. This man, Dan, as he saw the tornado coming across the river towards his house, he hurriedly moved his wife, Kristen, their six children, and all their pets into the master bedroom closet, which had been built as a storm shelter. As he closed the door and the family was calmed down, ready to endure what was to come, Dan turned towards his children and said, this is the day of salvation. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, now is the time to do it. And within moments, the tornado struck, destroying the house around them, though their lives were spared. But it could have easily just gone another way. Over 34 people died as a result of that same storm system. Jesus says that God is the one who has numbered our days and there's nothing we can do to add or take away even a second. And when we think about that, that at any time God is going to terminate the life that he has given to us and cause us to stand before him, how will we be found? How will you be found, dear Christian, when you pass from this life to the next? Will it be full of a legacy of God-glorifying fruitfulness? Or will you be found to be as a tree that produced nothing. 
because of the patient mercy of God this morning, there's still time to repent. There's still time to seek His face. There's still time to follow in the commands of Christ and go to Him, trusting Him that He will produce the fruit that you need. Dear lost friend, what about you this morning? Will you delay believing I've got all the time in the world? Jesus says, you don't have all the time in the world. Repent lest you perish like those at Siloam, like those of Galilee. God has provided salvation in Christ, so repent. Repent of your sin, turn towards God in faith, and God will be merciful. God will forgive. Father, we are thankful for that promise that you have given to us. We are thankful that it's not what we have done that makes us right with you, but is what you have done for us in Christ. We are so thankful for him and for his work. We pray, God, that our lives would reflect that gratitude, the grace that has been poured out upon us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.